Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Hi there. This is Anna David. You're listening to Light Hustler, podcast about addiction recovery. Today we're talking about trauma of all fun things. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I am a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, seven freaking books uh, about addiction, recovery, relationships. I got a lot to say. And uh, Light Hustler has is part of a whole thing. There's a storytelling show. I have courses for people who want to share their story, all of that. I, I, this was such a fun episode. So I'm going to get into that in a second. But I also, if you, are you someone who thinks they might want to write a book? Because if so, I've got a treat for you. I've got a freebie that I only give my coaching students. It's the ultimate guide to writing a book proposal. Now, here's what I'm going to say. If you want it, DM me on IG. Yeah, I talk like that. Direct message me on Instagram. It's like something I'm kind of getting into. So find me on Instagram at Anna B. David, and then send me a DM. I know this is a multi-step process, but just bear with me. Go with this. Uh, Send me a DM. Say, I want the ultimate book proposal overview, or you said something on your podcast. I don't even remember what, but I'm I'm doing what you said. Whatever. Let's see how this goes, you guys. I want to help you write your book. So um, with that, let's talk about the guest. She is sober over 16 years, and she is an expert on EMDR, which is a, I'm going to be honest, really bad name for a form of trauma therapy. Now, in this episode, here are some things you're going to get out of it. We, she explains what exactly EMDR does to the brain because it's kind of wacky. I've been doing it. It's been changing my life. She breaks down what exactly it's doing to those neurotransmitters, why it's not named right, and how it can help people get over trauma they've worked on in therapy for decades, i.e. me. Her name is Dr. Jamie Merich. She is the author of five books, including EMDR Made Simple, Trauma and the 12 Steps, Creative Mindfulness, Trauma Made Simple, and Dancing Mindfulness, A Creative Path to Healing and Transformation. She was also the co-author of EMDR Therapy and Mindfulness for trauma-focused care, which she wrote with my friend and previous podcast guest, Dr. Steven Danziger. 
You're getting her theme, EMDR, trauma. That's her thing. You would never believe that a conversation about trauma could be as fun as this one was. It was one of my Facebook Live interviews. Anyway, I hope you love it. You can find out more about Dr. Marich by going to drjamiemarich.com. It's D-R-J-A-M-I-E-M-A-R-I-C-H. Yeah, and if you want that guy to writing a book proposal, DM me on the IG. This is Dr. Jamie Marich. Well, hi there, you guys. I'm Anna David. I'm a New York Times bestselling author of seven books about addiction recovery, relationships. I'm here with somebody who I think has more books than me. I think she does. Not quite seven. Getting there. Well, by the end <laughs> of this interview, she may have three more. Powerhouse. This is Dr. Jamie Marich. And um, it looks like people are already here, which is so awesome. Yes. And so if you like the people in your life, please go and share this with them. If you know anybody who has suffered from trauma, which is to say, I don't know everyone I know, um, go share this with them. That is what we're going to get into in three years of doing this podcast and this Facebook Live versions of the podcast. I have never focused solely on trauma, and that's what we're doing today. So it's terribly, terribly exciting. So. Dr. Jamie Marich is the author of five books, but she's working on her sixth right now. Um, the books are EMDR, Made Simple, Trauma and the 12 Steps, Creative Mindfulness, and Trauma Made, Trauma Made Simple, and then Dancing Mindfulness, A Creative Path to Healing and Transformation. Although, which is the, I'm so sorry, this the book with Steve is EM, no, what, I didn't even mention the book you did with Steve Danziger. Yeah, it should be on the bio. It's uh, EMDR Therapy and Mindfulness for Trauma-Focused Care. It may be a little down the road because it's the newest one. I don't know. I forget which version you have. Oh, yes, there it is. EMDR yep. Therapy and Mindfulness for Trauma-Focused Care. And she wrote it with my friend and previous podcast guest, Dr. Steven Danziger. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you. So nice to finally be meeting you, even if it's only over the interwebs. It feels real. It, feels it does. In the same room. It does. Um, so, so Jamie, I'm just going to call you Jamie and not. That's fine. Oh, Jamie's fine. Okay. So, so Jamie has a fascinating story. So not only is she sober over 16 years herself, but she is uh, this prolific author who who's Ohio based, but travels all over the world doing EMDR trainings, facilitating all of these things. The reason I'm so obsessed with this now is, as I've talked a little bit about this, um, not on the podcast, but on Facebook, I have just started doing EMDR. And um, this is just a shameless opportunity for me to pick the brain of like one of the leading experts on the topic. So for people who do not know, Jamie, what is EMDR? So EMDR stands for, let's get that out of the way, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. As you and I were sharing in our chat before the interview, it is a terrible name. Uh, it really is reflective of the historical context of which the therapy was founded by Dr. Francine Shapiro. Because there's a story which is almost the stuff of legend now that she was taking a walk in the park as she was contemplating on some terrible things that had happened to her. She is a cancer survivor, was recently going through some issues around that with her health, uh, was a very devoted student of mind-body medicine at the time. In the 80s, she was a student of Stephen Levine's and several others on the West Coast and the Mediterranean 
meditation, mindfulness world. And so she was always in this container of experimenting with her body to see if I do this with my body, how will it affect my mental processes and vice versa. So she was taking this walk and discovered that her eyes started doing this bizarre back and forth thing as she was with thoughts and feelings. And so from there, she started trialing and erroring with her friends saying, follow my fingers as we reflect on these thoughts, feelings, emotions, notice what happens. And it's not as simple as just think of the trauma, follow my fingers and it's going to go away. Um, there is a method and a protocol that therapists who are trained as therapists in the first place need to get schooled in in order to do EMDR safely and properly. But the reason it's a horrible name and a clinical misnomer is it was eventually discovered that you didn't need the eye movement component to have a lot of the effect. You could do it by having earphones like I have right now and hearing alternating beeps going back and forth. You can um, engage in the questions, the, the method that takes you inward while you're being tapped. So this is an example of how we apply self-tapping in EMDR. There's also a machine that can do the tapping back and forth. Um, the therapist, if the, it's okay with the client, can tap on the client. So it can be done with eye movements, it can be done with audio, or it can be done tactile. And the thing, the mechanism at play really is this back and forth stimulation. We sometimes call it bilateral stimulation or dual attention stimulus. And that oscillating motion back and forth, it, it, the easiest way I can explain it, it really helps us go deeper into the brain than talk therapy alone allows for. So a lot of people who've had experiences with EMDR will say things like, I mulled over this issue in talk therapy for years and years and years, and it just never quite shifted. I have good cognitive understanding of it, good rational sense, but at the heart and the body level, I still feel stuck. And EMDR is one of really many embodied approaches that can help us go deeper than talk alone. Uh, but at least as a therapist in my office working with people, it is probably the, the most effective method I have seen for allowing me to access the holistic person and allow these shifts to happen more effectively and more quickly. So what percentage of your clients are you doing EMDR with and what percentage are you doing just talk therapy? I do EMDR with all my clients. Okay. Um, now, yeah. part of the context is I have a smaller caseload right now because of my teaching schedule. But even when I had a more standard caseload, even at that point, I'd say 80 to 90 percent, largely because people were coming to me specifically for EMDR, um, because once you get known in an area as doing it, and people are desperate for solutions other than just talk therapy. I tell a lot of people I train, once you get it and get the method and get well-schooled in it, a lot of people will end up finding you. So it's a great question because like myself and our common friend, Dr. Steve, we consider EMDR to be our primary approach that we use with people. I mean, of course we do other things like Steve and I are both uh, pretty strong as 12-step facilitators believing in 12-step facilitation. I do expressive arts therapy. There's there's other things I bring into the mix, certainly, but EMDR would be my primary method. And you, you do yoga trauma work. Yes, I'm a yoga teacher. I do trauma-informed yoga. Um, I teach some classes in the community. I train other therapists as well in how to bring in elements of yoga into the therapy session. So for instance, I'm not ever taking my clients through a full yoga class 
But in our centering for the beginning of a session uh, during closure, we may do some poses and breath strategies. If they get stuck in the middle of an EMDR protocol, there may be an appropriate yoga breath strategy or yoga pose I can bring in. So yes, I do a lot of integrating yoga into my psychotherapy and I'm always referring clients to some appropriate type of yoga or embodied practice in their community because I think their yoga together with therapy are just such powerful adjuncts of each other. So, okay. So back to the bilateral stimulation, yeah. so you talked about this and, and then, so, so what I do, I call them orbs. She gives me yeah, yeah. tappers like, orbs. That's a good name. I haven't heard that one before. I like it. I talk about it, but I need language for it. So she gives me these two orbs, yeah. uh, little balls. I put them in my hand. She starts a little machine mm -hmm. and, um, and here was my experience. So, so my background with it, you know, I'm a, I'm a Jew from Marin County. I have been <laughs> since I was 16 sure. and, um, you know, talked everything to death and a huge fan of talk therapy, always been a proponent of it. When I realized that I had had trauma, I was 21 years old. And so I went to a therapist and I, I found a therapist who did the EMGR and she, uh-oh, uh-oh, Jamie went away but but she will come back look she's already back um i told her this can be sort of wonky there she is yeah I, it froze so i refreshed you did it perfectly Great. so okay so so I, I so this was let's say uh 1994 so probably mm -hmm. quite early on in the emdr days and i remember she took a pencil and she went like this Mm -hmm. And she was a lovely woman. I thought EMDR was so that I could find memories I had repressed. I was convinced I had repressed things. Mm -hmm. You know, however many years later, it looks like I didn't. It, it looks like I remember all the horrible stuff. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But so I felt like this is dumb. It doesn't work. And I mm -hmm. left it alone. And yeah. then I, you know, I would hear more about it. I'm friends with Steve Danziger. Um, and then I had a couple friends who went to do it. And all they would say was, you know, you'd sort of see them, they'd be like, I've been sobbing all day. I've been in EMDR. And so it was sort of in the back of my head, I've had a lot of trauma. I need to do EMDR. I'm a pretty happy person. I don't want to cry. And so right. I wait until I went through something horrible starting in, mm -hmm. in May. I was crying every day anyway. And I was like, let's freaking do this now because I'm Good crying day anyway. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is also I'm one of my traumas is that my, my family always laughed at me when I cried. So I have a huge problem accessing my sadness. I, mm -hmm. I'm just like, I get it. And so I was like, Whoa, I'm sad all the time right now. So let's yeah. go. Into it. So it was just a perfect time for me to go in. And um, yeah. And so I would hold my orbs, uh, talk yeah. about memories. And, um, and, and so this is the process and I, you know, I'm sure it changes from, you mm -hmm. know, as a therapist, but basically she said, we talk about something and she says, what's mm -hmm. your level? I don't know the language of trauma. Level about of distress. Level of distress. We usually say stress. And mm -hmm. usually if it's something I'm crying about, it's a nine or a 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then what we'll do is I'll start talking about it. And then, she, you know, and the orbs are going and my eyes are closed. And then she says, mm -hmm. uh, she'll stop it and go, what does she always say? She goes, what's, uh, what's coming up. Mm -hmm. I, and then, and then it's something I, I, this is just sort of how I'm wired. I kind of will feel like I'm doing it wrong. Like I'm giving the wrong answer. You You're know? not the first one who yeah. thinks that. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, well, she didn't ask me, what are you thinking? So obviously she means yeah. what's coming up. I don't know what's coming up. And so I just tell her what I'm thinking. Yeah. 
and 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 it goes and it goes and it mm-hmm. goes and then at the end and I have no idea if it's 20 minutes passing or 40 minutes passing I have no sense of time while it's happening she says what's your level of um distress mm-hmm. and it always goes down when I did last week it only went down one number mm-hmm. but I had them go from nine to two yeah mm-hmm. right well a little insight I'll give you on the experience you described so the reason we ask what are you noticing now as opposed to what are you thinking about now, is it, we want to be open to the full range of your experience. So for some people, they'll give us, okay, the thought that's on their mind. But if what you're noticing now is that your chest is on fire, tell us that. Right. Because that means your body is giving you that information. So the magic EMDR phrase is go with that, because we want you to be able to be with, but then keep letting be revealed what that information may be giving you. So the reason we ask, what are you noticing now? It's really like an open-ended meditation question in essence, which is don't necessarily try to force a thought on it. It might be a thought, you're right, but it could be more of a feeling, a sensation, a new memory, a new uh, essence. And I was very moved by your story about your early experience in 1994, because that was very close to the time EMDR was founded, because 89 is when it premiered as a therapy. And so uh, a joke that some of my colleagues and I have is when people told us they got trained back then, we'll say, oh, back when nobody really knew what they were doing with it. And I don't mean that as a slam, because I I admire those pioneers for for doing the training and really being seen as weirdos for doing it, because that's very much the reputation EMDR had in those early days. But we've learned so much in the last 30 years about refining the method and tailoring it more to the individual. And yeah, uh, yeah, your experience is not uncommon, where a lot of people in those early days were trained only using eye movements. And an interesting point you made that I do a lot of clarifying about is EMDR is not about pulling up repressed memories. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some other therapies where that's really vital to the mechanism of action. Now, EMDR may take you by surprise. You may have experiences like, shoot, I forgot that happened, or I never connected those two things together. But one thing Dr. Shapiro always said that EMDR does not bring up memories just for the sake of bringing them up. It's the, the point of it is not to torture you with your past, but if something is going to come up in the reprocessing, it's because it's connected to the issue that you're working on. And the EMDR method reveals what needs to be revealed. There's that great 12-step slogan, right? More will be revealed. Uh, EMDR does it very efficiently, sometimes a little too efficiently that it could take us by surprise if we're not used to feeling things that intensely. But another part of your experience you explained is very common that a lot of us grew up for one reason or another with negative belief, even about our ability to feel feelings. I cannot show my emotions. I cannot trust my emotion. Showing my emotions make me weak. For some people, the messages are really gendered. Those of us growing up in alcoholic or dysfunctional home dynamics, the good old don't talk, don't trust, don't feel are classic messages that can get encoded in our in our brains. And the nice thing about the EMDR method is it can help us tackle those things too mm-hmm. that may get in the way of us even doing the deeper work. So here, essentially, that was all very, so interesting and so well said. Here, here's the crazy thing is, yeah. you know, I live in Los Angeles. I'm as woo-woo as, as a lot of people. I bathe my crystals in the moonlight, kind of woo Awesome. So am I. Or so, so do I, I should say. So the crazy thing about EMDR is it's very, like, on brand for me to do something woo-woo. But this <laughs> is scientifically proven. This is medically proven. This is yeah. you say... Oh, therapy is bullshit. People who don't think talk mm-hmm. 
does anything, stand by this. Can you talk about that? Certainly. And one of the reasons EMDR is my main method because, oh, I am queen hippie, queen woo-woo in my field. There's things I do woo-wooier than EMDR. I'm a Reiki master yoga teacher. We've talked about a lot of those things. Um, but EMDR is, it's interesting because it used to be considered very fringe, very alternative because it was nuts at the time. Like, oh, move your eyes back and forth while you sense into memory experiences in your body. Uh, but one of the things I do credit Dr. Shapiro for is she really did soldier very strongly in those early days in the 90s and 2000s. We have to research this, research this, research this. And so she developed a very technical protocol. One of the reasons you're asked those questions about level of distress is so that we can measure it. And at the current time, EMDR is one of the three most researched therapies for PTSD. It's on the list of most major clinical organizations' preferred therapies for treating PTSD. And there are, are other things out there that can treat PTSD very holistically, but none of them in this realm of more embodied therapies has the research support quite like EMDR therapy does. If people are interested, they can go to emdria.org, which is our big international organization. And there's an up-to-dated listing that's kept there of all of the research reviews, literature reviews, uh, clinical randomized controls on EMDR therapy. It's, it's really quite exquisite and it's something I'm just proud to be a part of. So are the tests measured by what the client says? Like I went from level nine to level three? Well, a lot of the research that's out there now is of various kinds of research. Like you have your really highly randomized controlled studies where those messages or those ratings around distress are taken into effect, but also have symptoms eradicated. So if for instance, a measure of success is if you go in as a client and have this clinical threshold that meets PTSD symptoms, and then by the end of a certain course of EMDR treatment, those symptoms are eliminated. So with clinical trials, we're looking at has there been evidence that the diagnosis itself has been eradicated or the symptoms of it have been reduced. Those distress level numbers are a way to give us a really good symptom by symptom rating, or not symptom by symptom, session by session rating of if stress is going down. So could we do an EMDR session without those numbers? Yes. But the reason that they're there is to help your clinician give, give, help your clinician know that they're on the right track with things either moving up or down. And that's a lot of uh, the outpouring of how Shapiro developed her method to be something that could be easily researched. Now, um, I, I, sorry, I got distracted because did you see that Michelle Irene, uh, who was taught by you, came on? Oh, yeah. yes. And, and, and yes. <laughs> did she ask a question or just you make know, a she, comment? She a shout out and said she was so Hi, Michelle. Taught by you. Um, now, what are some of the symptoms of PTSD that someone could go in with that would be alleviated by EMDR? Sure. So the major symptoms of PTSD would be re-experiencing symptoms. So things like flashbacks, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, body level distress memories. You can have what we call the heightened arousal symptoms like the increased startle response, hypervigilance, outbursts of anger is considered a, a PTSD symptom. Problems concentrating can be part of PTSD. Uh, you also drawing from life, uh, drug and alcohol use to me kind of avoidance that can be PTSD. And then one of the newer criteria 
area for PTSD is distressing mood and cognition symptoms. So feeling intense negative affect or having negative experiences of, of emotion all the time. So mm -hmm. anger, horror, terror, shame, sadness, things that may look like depression and uh, just in, intense negative self-image types issues. Like I'm bad, I, no one can be trusted, I, I am defective. So, uh, and a lot of these symptoms may sound like other diagnoses you heard of, right? Like attention deficit, depression. So it really does become important that you're working with a clinician who can wait out how and what things are affecting you because so there is a lot of crossover between diagnoses but what we're yeah. realizing now the more we've learned about trauma is that a lot of behaviors and issues that cause human beings distress are explained by unhealed trauma mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now is there a typical number of sessions that it's not emdr is not something somebody goes into for life clear right yeah, I mean, we, we would hope not. I mean, some, several of us have long-term clients for one issue or another, because for sometimes um, just the nature of an individual's disability may require that they have some type of check-in on a more permanent basis. But yeah, one thing Steve always says is the sign of a good therapist is that they have a lot of former clients. And by and large, I agree with him. So yeah, we're not trying to get people into therapy long-term with this. And I do find that EMDR can work a lot more effectively and quicker than other forms of therapy, but I don't ever want to sell it as a quick fix. And that's one of my pet peeves around some of the marketing around EMDR, that you'll read things online saying, in three sessions, it wiped out what years of therapy could never do. Now, I think in three sessions, you can go very far. In three sessions, if you have a person with a pretty good life who has been through one single incident trauma, you may be able to eradicate most of the symptoms. But even our international guidelines say EMDR is not done in any certain number of sessions. And it really is up to the clinician and the client together to devise the best treatment plan possible. Speaking of uh, having his- uh... Speak of the devil. Hi, Stephen. Have you been working or do you know how much we've been talking about you? Um, and um, As promised. I, I was telling Jamie before we signed on that the EMDR therapist I have, I got because you referred me to her and I liked her name and her website and that you rep, like it was just the most, you know, sort of, I'm just going to pick this and it has been transformative. I can't stop going. I told her last week, I, the mornings I'm going days I'm going, I wake up in the morning excited. I think she was almost creeped out by that. Like, who's so excited to do freaking trauma therapy? Um, we're getting- We some like to hear that though. <laughs> yes. And um, so Stephanie's yeah. saying, I'm extremely thankful for EMDR. It's been over a year now. I use earbuds and sound. And yes, I bathe my crystals in the moon. <laughs> you know, sisters, brother from another mother. Um, recovering addict. Having complex. Yeah, CPTSD is complex PTSD. Oh, I've never heard that phrase. So that what that that's just more complex. Well, I can explain it. So PTSD is typically understood to be single incident. Like one bad thing happens to you and so you have all of these symptoms. Honestly, most of us who would meet PTSD criteria, it is of the more complex variety. Yeah. Typically meaning it's one thing after another that has made the trauma symptomology a little more volatile 
or the trauma happened at a very developmentally vulnerable point in your life, typically before the age of eight, often by a primary caregiver. And the symptoms that I mentioned when you asked me about PTSD can just become even more ingrained. We're sometimes referring to it as developmental trauma. And EMDR can work beautifully for it. It just may require more sessions about number. And if you're dealing with somebody who's complex PTSD, that's typically a situation where they would need more sessions. So um what's interesting, okay, so in terms of the quick fix idea, so like I said, I've been therapy, you know, since I was 16. I'm obsessed with my my regular therapist. Just think she's the most brilliant woman ever. And Mm -hmm. I was like the last thing I need is two therapists, but but I just I think my I I don't know what happened. I've basically been cheating on my therapist with this MDR. And like making up this to cancel. They're across the street from each other too. So it's let me let me normalize that though. I have two therapists. I have two therapists. My my after my other therapist is so freaking expensive that like I get broke keeping up both. Um, Right. But what are you? What what are your two therapists? So yeah, and this is a good issue for us to talk about. So I don't. I haven't gone to regular weekly therapy in years, but I do still believe that when you work in our field and deal with the kind of trauma we do, you have to stay linked to somebody who can who can see you when when you need to. So I have an expressive arts therapist who I work with primarily over Skype. She's in Seattle. Uh, she's a Jungian analyst, and we do mostly expressive arts, spiritual based work. Um, but then when I need an EMD our tune-up. I drive to Buffalo, New York, which is just about three hours from my home base. And we'll work like for a day or a half day, just kind of doing EMDR targets. So um, that's what's called more intensive model EMDR. It's becoming more popular. I see some clients that way. It's not for everybody because I do think you have to be pretty affect tolerant, feeling like willing to go there. Like, okay, I'm spending a day doing this. Let's go into the matrix. And so, but because of the nature of my schedule and my life, that works for me. So Um, I just went through my second divorce here a while ago. So obviously that required me to get back into working on some trauma triggers. So I would drive up and see her a little more regularly. So, I mean, the point that I'm making is people can get into different arrangements that work for them. I often see a lot of clients for EMDR and someone else kind of handles the more regular day-to-day recovery things. Um, And I think that arrangement can work well if both therapists are kind of on the same page, if they're not mixed messaging each other. Um, I often love doing work in concert, let's say, with the recovery sponsor, because if I have a client who's in a 12-step fellowship, their sponsor can take care of the day-to-day stuff, uh, the stressors, the, the problem of the week types of issues, which I think can be important to vocalize for people in recovery. But then once they come in to see me, it's like, all right, here are my targets. That's a term we use a lot in EMDR to talk about what we're going to be working on. And uh, so, yeah, some people will discontinue kind of standard therapy to cut down to EMDR for a while. Some people will dump their regular therapist and find an EMDR therapist. So I've seen all the different arrangements play out. And I think it's most important that the client decide what what arrangement's going to suit them. Yeah, I, mine, okay, so my regular therapist is so expensive that I can only afford to go to her tw- every other week anyway. Yeah. And so I just kept kind of looking out and like missing these. And then, I, and then, and so I just keep thinking I'm going to finish the EMDR. I'm going to be sick of it and I'm going to want to stop and it's not happening. So, mm-hmm. so it's funny. I was walking into like, I basically paid a fortune to just catch my therapist up on the last six weeks on basically what I've accomplished. <laughs> 
Uh-huh. And I walk in, I'm like, am I breaking up with her? And I'm like, no, 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 you're not ready for that yet. But, um, but you know, so, but I do want to talk scientifically about what yeah. is actually happening. So as these yeah. things, as these bi- the bilateral stimulation, what does that mean? And what is going on in the brain? Yeah. So what the bilateral stimulation itself is doing, it's opening up what we call a neurofiber bridge that links your, are you familiar with the hand model of the brain, that the human brain is a triune brain? Mm -hmm. For your listeners, look up Dan Siegel on YouTube, the hand model of the human brain. So I use the, the terminology of the feeling brain, which we call the limbic brain, which is the middle part of our brain that we cannot easily get to by words. But that is our fight flight brain. That is the part of our brain that can say stuck in some of these trauma repetitions. So we can't easily get to it by words. So the stimulus does is it opens up this neurofiber bridge that connects the limbic brain with the neocortex, which is the more rational brain, the you should know better brain, the wisdom to know the difference brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to reference an experience I shared earlier in our talk. We can have that time over and over again where we say, I should know better, I should know better, I should know better, but it's not linking up in the heart and the body. So what the dual attention stimulus is doing is it's literally widening the bridge between those two brains in ourselves. Because we can call them parts of the brain, but they're technically different brains. Um, And so the dual attention opens up the nerve. We can use slow dual attention, back and forth eye movements or taps that are very slow. To help do more positive experience, how to teach people how to do. Like if you have a pleasant or calm, safe place that you can go to, or the feeling you get when you meditate and have the sense of ease and calm in your body. So you can use this dual attention method to sense into some of the positives. But when you're getting into reprocessing trauma, the speed is usually set up a little higher because we want to move information more efficiently over that neurofiber bridge between the feeling brain and the neocortex. Mm -hmm. So a way that I've heard one of my mentors explain it before is that when we help a person process trauma in this way, we move memories to the neocortex, which is was essentially more efficient in its storage. And it's not that we're eliminating memories, wiping out memories, we're changing how they're stored in the brain with this dual attention method and other components of it as well. Because you can put the orbs on a person and if they're not invested in the process, it's not going to work. They have to be willing to feel and sense into things and answer the questions that your therapist would ask you. So there's a lot of components to it. A lot of what Steve and I do in our work is just how much mindfulness is a huge mechanism of action and what that mindful presence really is required to go deep in this process that I described to work. But essentially when somebody asks me for my quick, my quick uh, explanation of it, it shifts how memories are stored in the brain. Uh, hi, Olivia, I just saw your comment. Thank you yeah. for calling me your favorite trauma expert. <laughs> so I don't, I'm an ex- I don't know if I'm an expert, but they say what defines an expert is that you've made every mistake in the book and you've lived to tell the tale. So by that definition, I guess I'm an expert. <laughs> This is fascinating. You're moving the memory. I love that simple explanation because it all sounds so hokey and yet I'm experiencing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my brilliant therapist that I've been, you know, spending half my paycheck on going to, she's brilliant, but we've never done the stuff that I'm doing in EMDR. I've heard that a lot. (laughs) It's like, what God's name have we been doing for six years just talking about this? And, um, 
you know, I'll share one of my really powerful things that happened is, um, is I, I, it's just, it's such a, basically I could never feel any compliment. And I know that's like something we all say like, Oh, but, but every time someone, something positive, particularly about my career, like I listened to your podcast and it saved my life or you, but I would think you have me mistaken. You don't get it. Um, If I got a compliment about my looks, I'd go, well, then why is my life so tragic? Like I had the most insane ability to turn every compliment around without knowing it because I was saying thank you. And it was ego. That was the confusing part is my ego. And then, you know, of course I come from this family that like tells me I'm terrible, that doesn't see me, that pretends my Mm -hmm. and my imagination that, you know, all of that stuff. And, and I, all I know is that like sobbing about it in four EMDR sessions. And I was like, I'm like, I'm fucking awesome. I'm a badass. And it's like the first time in my life that I've ever felt mm-hmm. that. Good. And that's cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, what if I'm and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm smiling because I hear these things all the time. And I don't mean that to minimize your story and yeah. your experience. Because every time I hear it, I'm like, yes. Because this, this is what happens when you bring the whole brain into the therapeutic process. And I, there are a lot of brilliant therapists out there who know how to work with that neocortex, with the feelings, emo- with not necessarily the feelings, but talking about the feelings anyway. Sometimes you get into some feeling work. Um, but I know my first sponsor who saved my life, she was brilliant at working with that part of the brain. And I needed that when I first came in, because I don't know if I could have dealt with the deep, heavy emotional drama yet at that level at that point. So I, I really am careful even when I train to say therapists who do that work do an important service, but I don't fundamentally think it goes far enough. Um, that therapy in this day and age, we know so much now about the, how the brain works that we really have to be helping people work with their whole brain. And that's, uh, I often say EMDR literally is one-stop shopping for that. Because you can have a talk therapist who sends people to yoga, who sends people to Reiki, who sends people to crystal circles, um, a shaman, you know, and and I'd say do all that, too, if you can. But EMDR is phenomenal about really getting us to work with the whole body, the whole brain, the whole self right in that single method. And that's why I'm so crazy about it. And by the way, I've had sessions where we actually don't do the EMDR because I I have Mm -hmm. I come in with so much that we run out of time and we haven't even done it. So it's not Mm -hmm. like have to do that every session now what would you say you say well i don't think this will work on me or i'm scared Mm -hmm. it's a very good question i mean two things let's start with the fear first i i usually approach that by validating the fear because any change process is scary if you've been through a change process you know how scary it can be I would try to explore in the context of our relationship or our emerging relationship, help me understand what the fear is about. And for a lot of people, it really is a fear of getting better. What would my life look like if I made these changes and shifts? A lot of people are scared that they couldn't handle what may come up because there is still a lot of misinformation out there that EMDR is all about retrieving repressed memories, which it's not. Yet on the other hand, EMDR can be pretty emotionally intense. And so one thing I tell folks who work with me is I'm willing to help you get ready for that process. And that's why Steve and I are such big fans and people we've trained and people we work with and bringing in mindfulness approaches, bringing in meditation and holistic approaches, because we may need some of 
those to help ready a person for the intensity that EMDR can bring up. And when people say, I don't think this will work for me, often it's because they've been jaded by other forms of therapy. So I will often explore what some of those experiences have been like. Sometimes it's a core cognition of I am helpless. I, nothing will work for me because nothing has worked for me so far. And sometimes I explore the question, well, what does it mean for you for something to work? Right. Let's start there. And um, then usually from there, we can develop a plan. Well, what about people it doesn't work on? Are There clearly are going to be clients that say, you know what? Nope, nothing happened. My, yeah. my, well, yeah. I'm going to say we're here. I'm going to say I think it has the potential to work for everybody, um, but I also know that not every therapy is the best fit for everybody. So, I usually try to invite people to give it three to six sessions, just like we might tell people try six meetings, try six different meetings, and if it's not a good fit for you, then I'll help you try to find a therapy that is a good fit. But I, I have honestly seen this work for just about every type of client out there. If they're willing to do some of the preparation work required for Mm -hmm. it to allow that to work for them. And in terms of the mindfulness aspect, you know, because my therapist was trained by you guys, you know, one of the first (laughs) was said, have you read Buddha's brain, the Rick Hansen book, which I had been pretending I'd read for years. Um, And, and I actually read it. I mean, that's a pretty freaking, that is the book. I mean, it's brilliant and he's amazing, but like I'd read a page and be like, Ooh, what did I just read? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but we've really been incorporating that book into what yeah. I'm talking about. Equanimity. Right. So hard for, I think all addicts, but especially yeah. this one. Um, so, okay. What else? I, I, we, we've gone a little bit over because this is just okay. If you're okay, I'm okay. My, uh, I will just say my personal favorite book for somebody who's new to the mindfulness scene is John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness for beginners. Um, Because I mean, he's written a lot of things that I read one page and I have your experience, but that book, um, I think is we're all beginners, even if we've been practicing this for decades or years, that's part of the brilliance of the book is it really strips it down to, to a very accessible place for people. And I mean, there's so many great mindfulness scholars and places out there and writers that you can start with, but I know that was one that really changed me and has changed a lot of my clients. Okay. I'm going to read that. I, um, I also love this is not, uh, 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 what, letting go David Hawkins. I don't know if you've ever read that, mm-hmm. but I've um, not, but the title sounds great. Oh, he's amazing now. Okay. So, and, and so here's what you guys need to go do before you go get that mindfulness book. Sure. Get that one. But why don't you get uh, Jamie's book with Steve Danziger? It's called yeah. therapy and mindfulness for trauma focused care. It came out last November. Yeah. Get it on Amazon. Can you get it other places? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amazon, any place, any place books are sold online, you know, the pitch and Springer Publishing often our publisher has a lot of direct deals. Now, something I will say is we did primarily write that book for other therapists. However, we've both received a lot of messages from just EMDR clients, especially EMDR clients like yourself, who Mm -hmm. kind of get the yoga mindfulness scene. And it really helps to explain EMDR to them in a way that's more accessible to that vocabulary. Now, of my books, the one one that I read, I wrote that is probably the most user friendly on mindfulness for the general public is dancing mindfulness. Oh, okay. Now that is that is all on how to use 
to teach yourself to work with the mindfulness. Because although I have a sitting meditation practice, I'm a big believer that every avenue of human existence offers us a venue to practice mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And for me, dance and art making are two of the most powerful for that. So thank you for plugging those. Your, but your trauma in the 12 steps is your, probably your biggest book, isn't it? it yes. It's what brought Steve and I together. He'll tell that story about he read that book and sent me the message. And yeah, in recovery circles, it's probably the one that, that I'm, I'm most known for. Um, that one I also primarily wrote for sponsors and counselors, but a lot of people who are simply working a program of recovery have given me such good stuff on it that part of my plan in the coming years is to write even a little bit more of a user-friendly version of that because that book really represents what so much of my work is about that I love the 12 steps of recovery they saved my life I continue to work a program but I also think there's a lot of problems and 12-step meetings and 12-step based treatment centers that don't reflect an understanding of trauma. So for instance, I have a lot of colleagues in the trauma mental health world who think I'm horrible, not horrible, but question me because I still follow the 12 steps. Yeah. Like they're outdated, they're horrible, they're not trauma informed. And so much of what I've taught is really at their core, as the steps are written, they are very trauma informed. It's just what meetings have done, what treatment centers have done, what people with unhealed stuff have done to the 12 steps yeah. have created a lot of problems. So my book is really about bridging a lot of those worlds. Do you want to know the book I think you and Steve should write? Cause I would, I need it. So you'd have to do it really fast. My you listening Steve? Yeah, he's bored and it's like doing something else, which would be so rude. But, um, but um, he, he didn't chime in. He's gone. Now, so let's just totally talk shit about him. No, my friend, <laughs> they the same amount of time as me. I, she's one of the ones I just mentioned, Adele. Every year, we want to rework the steps. We're sober, you know, around 18 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And we uh, don't want to be like writing about our drinking and using experiences from the right. night. We mm -hmm. just, they're not relevant. Um. If there was a trauma and the 12, a way to work the 12 steps around trauma, mm -hmm. that would be an amazing workbook. Yeah. Well, uh, oh, he said he's listening. Yeah. So, but are you writing that, Steve, is the real question. Yeah, um, well, we'll add it, we'll add it to our list of projects of which which there are many. And the new book I'm working on right now is called Process Not Perfection. And yeah. it's on expressive art strategies for overcoming trauma. And I define recovery very broadly in that book. This one is for the general public. And it's on how to use the expressive arts, which are all of them, dance, music, writing, drumming, singing, cooking, if that's something that you resonates for you as an expressive art, to work on a lot of themes of long-term recovery, and even if you're new to recovery. So uh, yeah, that's my next project, but Stephen and I may have to add that to the list, because that's a really good, really good idea, Anna. Oh, Thank you. so needed. Um, yeah, just give me an acknowledgement, and we're totally, totally cool. Um, cool. You could blurb it for us, or yeah. write the foreword. Um, we'll take so that. This has been so amazing. So thank you. Anybody who's listening to this uh, know that you can find out more about Dr. Jamie by going to drjamiemarich.com. It's M-A-R-I-C-H. And it's, I'm just going to spell the whole thing. D-R-A-M-I-Marich. 
Now, if that you're like, what is God's name is she saying? Jamie, I bet Jamie EMDR. I bet you could Google all sorts. Yeah. Of and I'll give you the easy one is traumamadesimple.com because the website you cited is my professional website that my name and all the projects come off of that. But we have one for Institute for Creative Mindfulness and Dancing Mindfulness. But just think trauma made simple. It's the title of one of my books. And that is a website we have set up for the general public to be able to access all my articles, everything I've written for free online is on that website. I have a big YouTube presence with uh, mindfulness videos, EMDR demos that you can watch. So if you're listening to this and you're still like, I still don't understand what that EMDR thing means. You can go to YouTube, type my name EMDR or Trauma Made Simple. We have the um, and frozen. Okay. you froze for a second, but I did. Okay. If you're watching it, uh, TraumaMadeSimple.com is up on the screen. So, and we're getting Great. Stephanie showed your for therapist your poem. I mean, you have just such avid fans on here. Um, Janelle is giving us a little heart. Um, you guys, this has been Jamie. Thank you so so yes. so much. Um, go share this with your friends. We love that you guys showed up. This is such an important episode. And if you are hearing this on the podcast, thank you as ever for listening. Um, we're going to wrap it up. And um, I'm sure when Jamie's next book comes out, I'll have her back. So thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. So nice to meet you. Bye. Bye.